What's going on, Ben? Long time, man. Yeah, yeah. How's it going? I hope everything's uh, been going well since I was on here last. You know, uh, <laughs> there's this thing going on in uh, Europe. I think it, the country is called Ukraine. And uh, it, things aren't looking so good. They're not looking so good there. So I thought I'd bring back, a, you know, someone that knows a lot about history and a lot about foreign policy. And I figured we could kind of get into it. And I mean, it's, I'm going to ask you a super broad question, but you know, what kind of, what are your thoughts on this situation that's going on right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, and like, like all, like, I don't know if everybody in the audience knows I was in the military. Um, I was actually military intelligence for like, uh, for a while, especially when like sort of this, first started off uh with uh, russia going into crimea and there's really like a lot of moving parts to this right mm-hmm. um obviously what it like obviously the elephant in the room is that russia is invading ukraine right yes. and like to be very very clear that is a terrible terrible thing that is fundamentally inexcusable and is happening uh at the direction of vladimir putin uh who i think we all understand to be a generally bad guy 100%. um but the truth is, it's a little bit more complicated than just Putin being a bad guy. Because yes, Putin is a bad guy, but, and here's like the big issue, is the United States has basically been spending the past 30 years goading Russia through expanding NATO. And that really, I think, is one of the things that is sort of missed in all this. And a lot of the people who mention the history of NATO antagonizing Russia are like being attacked as like Putin supporters, right? So to be clear, I don't support Putin, right? I, I do not support Putin even a little bit. I don't support this invasion a little bit. It's obviously indefensible. Um, but we need to understand that experts in the United States, foreign policy experts in the United States, to include literally Henry Kissinger, were of the opinion that it would be absolutely unacceptable to open up the idea of Ukraine joining NATO because they knew that that would be a red line for Russia and that would be tempting fate, that that would be basically trying, that would be goading Russia or instigating an invasion. They were under the belief that a response to uh you know the idea even that ukraine joins nato um would lead to russia invading ukraine so that was the understanding beforehand so now if you look over the past two years it changes the picture a little bit right if you see the united states and other nato countries dangling nato membership in front of ukraine and then selling them weapons that right there is very much an aggressive and instigative move towards Russia, especially since foreign policy experts in the United States basically predicted that this is what would happen. Um, and like that is where I think like people sort of misunderstand things. They like to think of good guys versus bad guys, but NATO was gambling. Like, let's be clear. NATO was gambling with the lives of the people of Ukraine. Um, by sort of like, you know, dangling NATO membership in front of them, selling them weapons and things like that, and trying to like win over Ukraine to the NATO side, uh, despite the advice of basically every foreign policy expert, um, they kept like goading this, they kept goading this. And now that Russia has invaded, uh, they're trying to paint themselves as, oh, well, clearly only we, only NATO can save Ukraine. Um, when one of the things that Putin is demanding is that, 
NATO cool down and NATO not let Ukraine join, which is just really interesting because when have you ever seen Henry Kissinger and Vladimir Putin agreeing on something, right? That no. Ukraine shouldn't be part of NATO, right? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the fact, I mean, this, the way I look at it is, and a little bit before we, we went live, we we're kind of discussing this. During the reunification of Germany, that was part of the deal was that NATO would not expand further. And we've since let three different countries into it. So you have, we promised that we wouldn't do that. And we did. And so when you, when you look at it, the Soviet Union breaks down, you have a young Vladimir Putin that's watching us break our word. So we don't have trust. We don't, and we don't have... I, we don't have good relations, and I, I often wonder, I'm sure we do, but I don't know <clears throat> if we have the same kind of back channels to talk to Russia as we did once in the 80s and the 90s, right? Especially at the the uh, the, the height of the Cold War, there was a, the infamous, uh, I think it was the red telephone or the red line or whatever, where we could, we could figure out and talk to each other immediately. We had a, a direct line from Moscow to, to, to D.C. To, to talk so these leaders could talk. I, I worry now... Like, I, I'm not a big fan of Google and Facebook pulling down like Russia today because I think it's important, right? And I've, I've been on that looking just to see what the other side has to say, just to see, just to check out their propaganda of what they think this war is. Um, I don't, I'm not a big fan of that type of censorship, especially, and that to my knowledge, they were, they, they were taking those sites down in Europe, and, and I'm not a fan of that. So I don't necessarily like. <clears throat> Obviously, I don't like what's going on. I don't like that there is bloodshed and needless violence. But I really just feel like we need to be communicating more because there's so much at stake right now. Um, I didn't, if you would have asked me 15 days ago whether this was possible or not, I would have probably said, he, you know, he's bluffing. I don't think he's actually going to do this. But he did. And now, now all of a sudden, it's like we're back in the, in the 80s. In the in the nineties, the, the height of the Cold War, right? Like, and I'm I'm not not happy about it. Um, I don't like the idea of getting involved in this. It's a, it's going to be if we, God forbid, we do, but it's it's going to be peer to peer contact or conflict, right? Which we haven't seen really in eighty years, and that's essentially what's happening right now. When I say peer to peer, it means that both armies have the same, essentially the same capabilities. Um, we haven't been involved in a conflict like that in quite some time. And that's not good for, for anybody. So I just hope that our, our leaders, I mean, I, I would assume that they are, but are taking this with the utmost seriousness because it's a, it's a pretty grave situation to see uh, the West and, and, and Russia's relationships deteriorate in such a, such a spectacular fashion over such a short amount of time. I'm pretty shocked, Ben. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I wish that I like had more faith that they were like coming into this negotiation in good faith and like having like a real conversation. But I think what we are really seeing right now is this memification of war. I mean, you literally have people posting like Avengers memes about everything that's like going on in Ukraine right now. And I think that Western leaders are 
too interested in running some sort of moral victory lap to say, hey, look, we're not the evil invaders this time. We're so, look at, look at, we're not the bad guys this time. You know, this isn't Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya or Yemen or Palestine. No, this time we are the good guys. And isn't this like, and they're taking this as an opportunity to do like moral grandstanding. Which and is, so, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, they should be negotiating, right? We should come from a position of humility and from an understanding of we might have to make compromises. But instead of doing that, they're 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 like just doing these sort of grandiose displays of like moral grandstanding, and it's not conducive to like a political negotiation. And I'm not talking about like whatever people on Twitter are going to tweet whatever they tweet, and they're going to try to memeify everything that's going on right now. But we shouldn't have world leaders doing this moral grandstanding when they're supposed to be negotiating with each other right um because like like let's be clear right there was another country in europe that was invaded in like 1999 and in 1999 it was nato that was bombing belgrade and nato bombed like hospitals and like embassies and stuff so this really isn't the time to be moral grandstanding because NATO is not going to win in a moral argument. But if we look at the material reality, which is the fact that right now Russian troops are in Ukraine, and if we want to get those troops out of Ukraine, that means the West, that means NATO has to be willing to make sacrifices. Like, And that's, that's really it. And the fact that NATO is unwilling to make sacrifices in order to protect the civilians of Ukraine is I think just incredibly selfish. And for all of these people who are trying to pretend that, oh, no, the only way to keep Ukraine safe is for them to have NATO membership. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Do you think that giving nuclear, like, do you think that nuclear arsenals becoming part of like, a, a, you know, a, a sort of military alliance uh, with a country, like, like, I mean, think about it for a second, right? They're talking about escalating it to like nuclear war. They're talking about escalating it to nuclear powers engaging with each other. And so like at this point in time, right, Putin is using the people of Ukraine cynically as a bargaining chip. And as much as we like to think that we should never negotiate with hostage takers, like at a certain point, we need to protect people's lives. And that means making hard decisions. And that means NATO being willing to take a step back and like actually negotiate with Russia in good faith and not do this moral grandstanding. I I couldn't agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. I a little quick history about Ukraine. I think what when the Soviet Union dissolved, I'm not sure of the year. What is it? In the early 90s, John pulled that up. Um 93, okay, 94. 93. Okay, thanks, John. So 93, Ukraine was one of the only, a few, there was a few Soviet countries, right? They're ex-Soviet countries that had nuclear weapons. And part of the agreement for them giving up their nukes, I believe on the Russian side, was that they wouldn't become a member of NATO. Um, and John, you might want to fact check me because I might be talking my ass here. Um, <clears throat> but so we made that deal in the 90s and they were to remain neutral, right? So they had nukes. Then they gave them up kind of unwillingly, so we would trade with them. And that was also part of the Soviet-American uh, deal to disarm, to get, rid of, to get rid of more nukes as well. Um, and when it comes to, you know, Russian expansion, 
um, there's, there's, I've been doing a lot of research on this. I understand that they have. Go, go ahead, John. Uh, so, former Soviet republics that have nuclear weapons. Uh, Belarus has 81 warheads. Uh, Kazakhstan inherited 1,400 from uh, Russia in 1995. And uh, Ukraine uh, said they had as many as 3,000, but that number was from 1994. So I'm not sure where they are now. Well, they got rid of them. Yeah. Of that, of that I'm sure. But, but when it comes to, the, yes, anyways, when it comes to like Soviet expansion, I know that, I know that they've annexed a little uh, – like Soviet enclave, right in Georgia. I know that Belarus is essentially a puppet state, and this is—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm kind of ignorant in this area as well because I've been geopolitics are, kind, are pretty much my jam. It's what I kind of pay attention to, and I've been very focused on the South China Sea. So I was very surprised when all of this started popping off. Then I started looking into it, and I was like, "Holy shit, man! There's definitely something going on here." I definitely. In my assumption, right, <clears throat> I think that Putin is definitely trying to rebuild the old USSR. Because if you think about it logically and you take a step back, everyone that is in Russia right now is, an, is, is Soviet, essentially. They went to Soviet universities. They were indoctrinated under the, under the USSR. So every, the, the leadership in Russia right now is Soviet. So it's, it would be – it's pretty – you don't have to go very far and look at the actions that they're they're doing around Eastern Europe to see that this is most likely a goal of their theirs. The the question is how do we come to some sort of compromise to share the world with them? Because they're a check to our power and they have a completely different way of doing things. And for a while there we were able to kind of coexist. And it's up to us to kind of figure out how to do that again. And I mean, I would lo love to hear your thoughts on how you would think we could go about doing that. I mean, well, that's one of those things where it just gets a little bit more complicated, though, because the truth of the matter is that, like, over the past 30 years, there's basically been this sort of de-Sovietization process. And right now, what's happening in a lot of Eastern Europe is sort of everybody sort of retelling the story of World War II under a different light. And so you're seeing like, like, so for example, right, um, in a lot of Eastern European countries, they were occupied by the Nazis. And then as the Soviets pushed the Nazis out, the Soviets were occupying them, right? And so the question arises, right? Were the Soviets the liberators or were the Soviets imperialists, right? Yeah. And the issue is, the issue is, with this de-Sovietization, you've seen this nationalist movement grow in a lot of different, like, uh, like Eastern Bloc countries, right? And that nationalist movement, in some cases, has basically led to a retelling of World War II in a way that I personally, I think is harmful. And I think we all should recognize as harmful because uh, there have been some people in these countries that try to paint the Nazis as liberators from the Soviets, yeah, from, right? Okay. And that's obviously, right, you can see how that's like a problematic path to go down, right? Like <laughs> yeah. there's some problems there. Yeah, yeah. And so 
that tension is the source of a ton of internal political conflict within these countries. Like, so for example, that tension is actually central into what's going on in Ukraine right now, because you have this sort of de-Sovietization policy, like literally um, Ukraine basically passed a law. You know how in the United States there's Republicans that are trying to pass laws banning critical race theory from schools? Mm -hmm. There's basically those same laws in Ukraine, but basically uh, saying that, you know, you can't, um, you know, you can't like glorify like the Soviet Union or anything like that. And basically trying to like de-Sovietize Ukraine, um, which has sort of opened the door to some of these right wing nationalists. But then you have people in eastern Ukraine, right, and Donetsk and Luhansk, right, who are like, hey, 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 that's part of our history. We shouldn't be like, you know, trying to like erase that from part of our history. Um, you know, we like being Russian and we need to understand this. And I don't really like the direction that you're going over there. Um, and then it led to like this, like, uh, it led to a political conflict, right, leading up to 2014. Um, that ended up basically, uh, with Donetsk and Luhansk declaring independence, declaring independence as Russian speaking people saying that Russian speaking people, uh, and Russian culture were being erased by Ukraine and, uh, basically in just sort of backlash against the sort of de-Sovietization policies, uh, that were being put in place. And that was the door that Russia basically used to get a little bit of a foothold into the Ukraine situation um, where, and because like, let's be clear, right? Like some of the like concerns of the separatist movements in Donetsk and Luhansk are legitimate, right? They're real concerns and they're totally understandable. Um, their only ally of opportunity really was Russia though, right? No. And Russia sort of cynically is using their concerns to try to justify this invasion, right? That's why Putin said that he wants to de-Nazify uh, Ukraine, right? But that's not, that's ridiculous. Obviously, Putin doesn't care about Nazis. If Putin cared about Nazis, he would deal with the Nazis that are in Russia, but he doesn't, right? Like he's just cynically using that as a line. And so like that internal politics that is existing in Ukraine, and to be clear, the government of Ukraine is not like a Nazi government, right? Like the whole idea of voting in Zelensky was to be a more moderate force as opposed to Poroshenko, who was a lot further to the right um, and did do a lot of really, really terrible, terrible stuff. Um, uh, but like the whole idea of Zelensky was that Zelensky is a more moderate figure that's going to like, you know, open the door to like more respecting of human rights and stuff. Um, but so Russia cynically using that as, as sort of its, its springboard to get a foot in the door uh, with Donetsk and Luhansk and then, you know, like now do its invasion. Um, but so, so that's where it just gets complicated is the internal politics of a lot of these Eastern European countries that are trying to sort of grapple with their history um, in World War II, to grapple with their history as, you know, former members of the Soviet Union. Um, and that internal conflict is sort of reflected globally with the conflict that's happening right now between Russia and, you know, NATO powers. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, in terms of how do we, like, resolve this, I wish I had an answer. I don't have an answer. Um, but I think we should open the door to getting rid of NATO altogether. And I know a lot of people think that that's some sort of extreme idea or whatever. But if NATO originally existed to counterbalance the Warsaw Pact and then later existed to counterbalance the Soviet Union, 
well, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. So why, like, and the Warsaw Pact doesn't exist anymore. So why are we holding on to NATO, right? And ultimately, I personally think that the answer is that there's a lot of former colonial powers in NATO that really like having a military alliance with each other so that they can do interventions in places like Libya and Afghanistan and Iraq. And I, when you say it that way, from the Russian perspective, they've always seen NATO as a very anti-Russian establishment. They feel threatened by that because they have asked for, I think they asked, they've asked for entrance a few times. I believe once was, I'm going to butcher this. I feel like it was in the 60s. Probably I'm going to get the date wrong there. And it may, yeah, it may have been in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s. And Churchill was in favor of admitting them. The reason that they went for this, it, w- it would have kept Germany demilitarized. So that was one of their main concerns. And it would have also eliminated the threat of NATO because it would have been in the club. So it was a win-win for them. And plus it would have <clears throat> gotten the West to be like, all right, it's not necessarily anti-Russian. So we denied admittance. And then they're like, aha, I told you it was to- it's totally anti-Soviet, right? So, I mean, if we would have, and I know Putin asked to join under the Clinton administration and was given not a very nice answer. And so I see, I, I, I see your point. I wasn't expecting you to say, get rid of NATO altogether. That's very, it's a very interesting idea. I believe uh, Trump pulled us out of NATO. Uh, am I right about that? Am I wrong? Am I uh, no, I don't think Trump pulled us out of NATO, but Trump. Oh shoot, I forgot exactly what the situation was that, John's, that John's, like, got everybody John's, mad about Trump regarding John's NATO. Gonna, John's goggling it right now, but <coughs> he. <laughs> sorry, I think I think he tried to pull us out of it, um, but. I, I think that that's a very interesting idea, right? If we really, that would be like if we really care about non, like non-intervention, because I have my my issues about it, right? Like I think that par- primarily uh, uh, that this is part of the reason this is a big deal is we want to sell our fucking guns. We want to sell our guns. I think uh, the Biden today just released, I think, thirty million barrels of oil from our from our reserves because uh, of energy scarcity. Uh, I believe that the in the State of the Union, I think that all the the efforts for global warming are going to be kind of killed temporarily because in the short term, we are going to need energy. We're going to start drilling the Gulf again. Keystone Pipeline is probably going to go through. I believe that all these things will happen because they view it as an existential threat and we need to be prepared. Those are kind of my thoughts and my I'm getting a little conspiratorial here. Go ahead, John. Uh, okay, so Trump never pulled us out of NATO, but he, from when he was running for president in 16 and after he was elected up until 19, he pushed to have to have the United States be removed or withdraw from NATO. Okay, that's what um, it was. But there was a, let's see, there was a bill passed in the House of Representatives in 2019 that was the NATO Support Act that uh, said that Congress would prohibit Trump from withdrawing NATO. Damn. Yeah. Um, I actually kind of want to speak to that for a second because this is where it gets really interesting, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, so let's think about it for a minute, right? Let's think about it for a minute, right? Why is NATO so crucial, right? Like to like Western powers. Um, 
if you if you sort of like erase history from your mind, right, you can say, oh, well, clearly it's just about peace and security. But like, let's think about it. What was World War II really about, right? What was World War II and World War I? What were those wars really fought over? They were fought over the rightful domain over the colonies. That's like, like as the world was talking about decolonization, World War One and World War Two were fought over who are the rightful owners over these, like, you know, colonies that, like, all of Europe has, like, around the world. Um, and, like, at that point, Russia was not part of that, like, colonial system. Um, and that colonial system really depends on this sort of just white supremacist viewpoint in respect to the rest of the world. And the reason why, the reason why, like, Trump was like, oh, yeah, let's get rid of NATO. We don't need to be in NATO anymore, is because Trump sees Putin as a fellow capitalist, because Putin is a capitalist, right? But Trump doesn't understand the role that cultural hegemony plays in justifying our system of imperialism around the world, right? This sort of cultural hegemony of, oh no, these rich white European countries, we just know better. And so we should be the ones telling other countries how to run their systems. And if they elect somebody that is bad for their country, we just have to go in, you know? Regime change, son. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so like Trump doesn't understand the role that cultural hegemony plays (coughs) in like this this in, you know, sort of global system of capitalism. And if we let Russia into NATO, if we let Russia into NATO, that would shift the sort of like international culture because Russia has a lot of different cultural ties that would prevent NATO from invading a lot of the countries that the United States wants to invade, right? Um, and so that's one of those things that if you don't understand the colonial history of the United States and the Western world, um, then you're going to get a misunderstanding of what NATO is really about. And so that's why they keep Russia out is because they don't want the cultural influence of Russia inside of an alliance that is meant basically to defend like the colonial empire. Because even though a lot of countries don't technically have colonies in the way that they used to, we do have the IMF and the World Trade Organization that force structural adjustment programs all over the world. And NATO plays a critical role in enforcing the rules that the IMF sets. 100%. And the, the IMF, they, I think we, I've discussed this a few times. They've sent, there was a South American country that was getting loans. John pulled that up. And they basically said, fuck you. Like we will never get out of debt if we accept this loan. And they, they have a, they have a propensity to do that to developed nations. They just, loan them money and keep them riddled with debt so they can never really develop. So I have my issues with the IMF. I, 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 you see that a lot. You see another country that is kind of very imperialist right now would be China. They do kind of the same system. They're, they're heavily involved in, in, in African countries and, and the way they do it is, is, is fascinating. So they build infrastructure roads, ports and they extract the resources and then truck it out on the roads they built, put it on a container, ship it back to China, manufacture it and sell it to the rest of the world. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a bad system. It's evil, but it's, it's pretty brilliant, right? Go ahead, John. Uh, so it was, uh, Ecuador. That, Thank you. 
that uh, rejected them, which I believe is it Ecuador that it, that started taking Bitcoin as their official <laughs> currency, one of their currencies. I actually think, or was that El Salvador? It was El Salvador. It was El Salvador. Okay, I believe it was El. Yeah, Google that. But, but um, that does. That's kind of um, how I how I view the world. I think that you know the Russian way of doing things is is, is kind of if there's a destabilization or some sort of pretty much the same playbook that we have. They did it in Georgia. They'll recognize kind of a rogue government and immediately recognize it, which is what they did in Luhansk and. Don't, don't, how do you how do you pronounce it? Donetsk. Donetsk. Thank you. Uh, but um, what are you? What are your thoughts of? Uh, I'm a big proponent of history repeating itself. And in in '62, when we were at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, we had China invade India, and so I'd, I've been kind of paranoid about them making a move on on Taiwan. How likely do you think something like that is? Um, oh, I would say that's incredibly unlikely. And like, because here's the situation, right? All China needs to do, China is positioning itself as the opposite of the United States right now. China is positioning itself from a position of radical neutrality, right? Radical neutrality, where the United States, if they don't like the way your economy is running, uh, they will bomb you. Right. China, on the other hand, will basically say, all right, here's the deal. We'll negotiate a deal. And then that's it. Right. Like, that's basically it. Like, they'll go to the leaders of a country um, and they won't care. Right. They'll work with socialist countries like Vietnam and Cuba. And they will work with extreme right wing countries like Duterte's, uh, um, like with Duterte's government. Right. Yep. And so they... They'll, they'll work with anybody and everybody. And the whole pitch of that is China will make agreements with your country and won't invade to tell you how to run your economy, right? Like that, that is literally like the whole pitch to the world. And most other countries in the world really like that, right? And that's actually really, I think, at the heart of this in a way that I think a lot of people aren't acknowledging. Because China being the sort of primary economic driver uh, in the world right now is what allows Russia to be able to sort of disregard the interests of the United States and the EU um, because they have that trade partner. Mm -hmm. And so, well, Russia invading Ukraine is a negative aspect of this new multipolar world that we have. I think the multipolar world in general is a good thing because now a country can basically say, okay, well, I'm not going to work with the United States. I'm going to work with China. They're not going to invade me. And that is very frustrating for the United States, uh, but it's very good for the people of the world in every other country because now they can bargain. Now they actually have real bargaining power mm -hmm. and they can say, well, if we don't think we're getting a good enough deal from you, we're going to go work with China and we're going to stop working with you uh, because we don't need you anymore. Uh, so you can't tell us how to run our economy. And that's why you see sort of a new pink tide happening in, in South America where, you know, you have, um, you know, this political movement away from neoliberalism and towards, in some instances, you know, more overtly socialist, but other instances more like sort of social democratic, where they're like, no, the United States told us that we couldn't have a welfare state. So we started working with China and now we actually can have a little bit of a welfare state and bring back our public education, bring back our like social security and healthcare and stuff like that. Um, and so it's created this opportunity, but it can lead to tensions if the United States refuses to accept 
that we live in a multipolar world. And that kind of is what is happening right now in Ukraine. The United States was basically coming in from a position of, no, we get to bully you to tell you how to run your system over there. And Russia is lashing out. And the reason why they have the economic ability to lash out is because of the trade partnership with China. If the United States refuses to accept this, it will lead to conflict. If the United States learns from this, it means that we could learn to maybe go to China and have a little bit of a negotiation and basically say, well, maybe we back off the South China Sea. Maybe we, you know, um, you know, maybe we leave you a little bit alone, um, you know, over there, China, and you tell Russia to back things down, right? Like we could go through those channels if we wanted to, but we have to learn that that is, the world that we live in. I really, li- I really like talking to you because you're looking. You look at the world vastly different than I do. Um, I'm a military history guy, and <clears throat> I'm going I'm to be honest. I didn't see. I like the whether we want to or not. We do live in a multipolar world, and there are voices that need to be heard and they need to be considered. And people, countries do things different than we do, and we have to accept that. And I think that the deal that Putin made with Xi Jinping, <clears throat> God, I hope I said his name right. Uh, did I? Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, the deal that he made uh, creating a, a market for his oil and natural gas, right? And, and, and eventually that will, will end up helping the economy. I know they're hurting right now, but eventually they'll, I guess they'll figure it out. But I'm getting off topic here. But I think that, you know, the way in which you view the world is like we all need to talk more and kill each other less and, and figure out a different way, a different means of doing that is, is, is really where we have to be. That is what Oppenheimer said when we created, he created the nuclear bomb. We have to evolve past killing each other to solve our differences. There has to be a better way. And I get very nervous when you look online, you see, we, we need a direct strike right now. We got to take, it's like, you, you listen, you guys haven't studied history. You do not understand how bad war is. It is, it is sanctioned murder. It is terrible. It destroys lives, families, your mental health. Like, and plus most of you motherfuckers that are typing behind a keyboard, you're not going to be the ones doing it. Like it is something that we need to get past. We have to start talking to each other. There's no, there's nothing glorious about it. It's off. Start read it, pick up a book and just read about the accounts of the soldiers in world war two. It's, it is not worth it. And that's another thing that is, is, is a bit saddening is we've lost that memory. We've lost all of those people, not all of them, but a vast majority of that generation that knows how terrible it is. They're gone now. They can't warn. They can't warn us about how bad it is. We have books, which not a lot of people read anymore, you know, like, so I, I get, I get concerned, but it gives me hope. And I, I, I love talking to you because you, you do think differently than I am. I think of like, you know, worst case scenarios and not maybe there is a lesson that we can learn from this and maybe we will continue to talk. I mean, President Biden has said that we are not going to get involved, but when you're, when, when stuff like this has happened, when active combat's happening, it doesn't take much for it to really get out of control. So it's like, it's, it's, it's a shame that it got here, but you know, God forbid we would get involved and, and God forbid, you know, anything else happen or they attack a NATO country, which I don't think they'll do. They're not stupid. No one wants that. No one wants mutually assured destruction, but I'm, I'm really, 
Um, I'm really glad that you're thinking that way, thinking outside the box. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of those things that's like, cause you're, I mean, you're right, right? Like Russia doesn't want a world war. They don't want a nuclear war, but right now the position that they're in, basically what they're doing is they're subjecting Ukraine to this as a tactic as they're li- literally as a bargaining tactic and it's shameless and evil, right? Like, but literally like they're inflicting suffering on the people of Ukraine with the goal of getting a concession out of nato that is that is it right they're literally like uh, this is a hostage taking sort of bargaining chip situation and the hostage taking is bad but what we need to understand is that it is selfish of us to think that we shouldn't have to make any sacrifice at all um for the well-being of the people of ukraine I think it's totally on the board for the United States and NATO to make concessions if that means, you know, the people of Ukraine not having to live under military occupation. Yes, exactly. It, it, and, and just to stop the bloodshed, either side, it is it's hopeful because Russia is they're they've, they're having talks with the, the the Ukrainian government right now, or not now, but like a few days ago they had talks, and uh, from what I was able to tell. Uh, they found some points that they agreed on and some, they found some common ground. So that's, you know, that's encouraging. But I mean, is that a stalling tactic as, uh, as Russian forces surround uh, the Kiev? Uh, that, that, and that's another concern of mine. It's going to get worse. Like it's going to get a lot worse. The longer this drags on, the, the more pieces that get into place, it's definitely going to get worse. I, I think that, um, as far as civilian casualties for the amount of ground that's been taken, it's, it's, it's still, it's, it's still atrocious, but it's not as bad as I would have assumed it would be. Um, but any, any, any loss of life is, is, is tragic, but I'm thinking, you know, as, as the army settles, I don't know what kind of capabilities they have. Do they have the same abilities to us that like when we took back a Fallujah and Mosul and we took it back block by block, do they have those same capabilities or do they, sh- knock the whole city down. I, I don't know. You know, I don't know tactically what they're thinking, but um, <clears throat> God forbid this goes I, on any longer. I don't think that you, like, I don't think that Russia would approach this from a strategy of just like, you know, knocking the whole city down. Right. Yeah. Because like, there's just some specific economic interests that Russia wants out of Ukraine, right? So it wouldn't make any sense for them to, like, flatten Ukraine in the way that the United States, like, flattened, like, a lot of cities in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, <coughs> you know? And, but, but like, really, I mean, it's, it's just really, really tough. And it's hard to see where this goes because I've seen a lot of people who are basically saying, oh, even if Russia pulls out, we should keep the sanctions in place. But, like, you need to realize, right, that, like, we, like, we need to make peace the most profitable option for Putin, yeah, right? Yes. Like, that's the reality. We need to make peace the most profitable option. Um, but right now if we're talking about profits, the United States is looking at oil profits and we are looking at the defense uh, contractor profits. Yeah. And so like, that is what sort of scares me about this is that American leaders are going to learn the wrong lesson and that they're (coughs) just going to continue this brinksmanship because they think that it's good for the money machine. Yep. 
That's part of yeah. the, the problem with the industrial, military industrial complex that we kind of have here. Um, but there ain't no kind of, it's what we have, right? Um, what could you talk, could you speak a little bit about um, some of the resources that he might be potentially after for the listeners? Um, yeah, well, so there's basically two things, right? First and foremost is there's probably a chance that one of the goals is to connect Crimea to the separatist region in Donetsk and Luhansk so that he has a sort of like land connection that they could run an oil pipeline through to the port, uh, the, the port that's in uh, Crimea. Um, then there's also like lithium and there's also like lithium deposits, which are really important if you're talking mm-hmm. about like uh, electric Batteries cars and stuff like that um, that exist in eastern Ukraine, um, and that is is like a like a big sort of player, um, and a lot of that is like in eastern Ukraine. Um, I mean, as for Kiev, Kiev is just like you know, obviously it's like a major city and it has like its own economic interests. I'm not terribly familiar with like the economic like role that Kiev specifically plays within Ukraine, um, but that's because to be entirely honest. Before this happened, I was sort of predicting that all Russia would do, and I was wrong in my prediction, to be clear. Um, I was wrong in my prediction, but I predicted that Ukraine would just send reinforcements to Donetsk and Luhansk um, and try to, like, solidify those positions. Um, But they ended up just going through all of Ukraine. So I'm not, you know, certain about Kiev. Yeah, John, go ahead. Uh, So to kind of jump in and help you out, Ben. Uh, According to Ukraine Invest, which is a Ukrainian government website, uh, Ukraine has the seventh most uh, deposits of iron in the world, eighth of manganese, sixth of titanium, second most galenium, uh, fifth gerenium, uh, and that's just non-metallic metals. There's like a whole list of things that would be highly, highly uh, valuable. No. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm very anxious to know what this this is the first state of the union I'm actually like excited and I'm excited to watch like, what's going on what are we going to do <coughs> we're missing that uh, to record this show but I'm definitely going to rewatch that and and check it out but this is definitely interest it's it's interesting to see the entire world take an interest in 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 the geopolitical space this is something that has always interested me just, just for the simple fact that there doesn't seem to be that much of a difference it doesn't matter which political parties in power it's it's generally the same type of process that we go through um when dealing with other country it seems to be the one thing where we're united on for good or for bad and that's why it's always fascinating to pay attention to it and that's why it, and you get a lot less bullshit i feel like uh looking at geopolitics i guess you do in a different way as opposed to domestic and it's 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 good to I guess it's good to be for for it's good to get other people interested in these things because they're so important, and it's it's also important for you know you the listener p- the person listening to know that like you were we're all raised and I have listeners and other parts of but primarily in America right we're all raised with a certain level of like Western sensibility or whatever. And that there are people from all over the world that have completely different viewpoints and and completely different ways of doing things. So we all have to figure out how we can share 
this fucking planet together and not kill each other. I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you educating us. And I, I really appreciate your position. And I find it to be very well researched and uh, man, I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm happy to have you, man. I'm, I'm glad you came back and, and uh, do you have a, yeah, go ahead, man. Uh, if you could plug uh, your socials, any, any of that stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to follow me on uh, Twitter, that's at Benjamin Carollo. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitch, where I stream five days a week. That's Bleep Blomp Ben. Um, and then I also, um, like, I'm a host of a show called Galaxy Brain on the Young Turks' uh, Twitch channel. Um, and you can check me out there. It's a really good show where I do deep dives into topics like this <laughs> yeah we'll have you back uh we'll, we'll keep a keep a close eye on this and and we'll definitely get you back on man appreciate you coming on yeah yeah thank you